You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. I don't start a novel thinking I have things to show you or tell you. I always start a novel because there are things I want to discover. This event was presented as part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program. Hello, I'd like to begin tonight's proceedings by acknowledging that we're meeting today on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and to acknowledge them as the sovereign owners of this land and to acknowledge that their sovereignty has never been ceded. My name is Dr Eugenia Flynn. I'm an Aboriginal, Chinese, Malaysian and Muslim writer and researcher. I'm also a um, Vice-Chancellor's Indigenous Postdoctoral Fellow in uh, the School of Media and Communications in Writing and Publishing um, at RMIT University. And it's my absolute pleasure to uh, open tonight's proceedings and to introduce our guests Uh, RMIT Culture is thrilled to partner with the Wheeler Centre as part of Spring Fling to present tonight's conversation between award-winning author Kamala Shamsi and author of Love and Virtue, Diana Reid, about Kamala's latest work, Best of Friends. Kamala Shamsi is the author of eight novels, which have been translated into over 30 languages, including Burnt Shadows, and a god in every stone. Her previous novel, Home Fire, won the Women's Prize for Fiction, was long-listed for the Man Booker Prize, and shortlisted for the Australian Book Industry Award for International Book. A Vice President and Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Manchester, she was one of Granter's Best of Young British Novelists in 2013. She grew up in Karachi and now lives in London. Diana Reid's debut novel, Love and Virtue, was an Australian bestseller and winner of the ABIA Book of the Year Award and the ABIA Literary Fiction Book of the Year Award, the ABA Booksellers Choice Fiction Book of the Year Award and the Mud Literary Prize. Love and Virtue was also shortlisted for the Indie Debut Fiction Award, the ABIA Matt Ritchell New Writer Award, and highly commended at the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards. Diana was also named a Sydney Morning Herald Best Young Novelist in 2022. Seeing Other People is her second novel. Please join me in welcoming to the stage Camilla Shamsi and Diana Reid. Hi, um, thank you so much for that introduction. And um, as you can tell from um, Carmela's bio, um, <laughs> we're very lucky to um, have her today and to be able to um, speak to her about her amazing book, Best of Friends. So Best of Friends follows a childhood friendship from 1980s Karachi to 2019 London. And on the way, it looks at pressing political issues of our time, like big tech and immigration laws, but it also asks timeless questions about the role of politics in our personal lives. And the friendship between two young women, Mariam and Zara, is drawn with such humour and tenderness and such specificity that it actually becomes a universal comment on the nature of friendship in general and on the special role that old friends, the best of friends, play in seeing who we really are, where we've come from, and who we cannot help but be. So, Kamla Shamsi, I'm so excited to talk to you about this book. Ah, oh, thank you, Diana. <laughs> so, I'm quite excited to talk to you as well. I oh. say I'm, I'm loving your novel, which I'm halfway through, and I had to put it down to come here. Oh, well. I was a little bit bitter about that. <laughs> Um, Okay, well, yeah, I hope it doesn't fall off a cliff after that point. (laughs) Um, So thank you for reading. Um, So I thought um, for those who maybe haven't had the chance to read Best of Friends yet, maybe it would be helpful to start by um, just explaining the, um, who these two women are and also the distinct points in their life at which we meet them. Yeah. Um, So the novel starts in 1988 in Karachi, as Diana said. They're 14 years old. Um, Their names are Zara and Mariam. And at 14, they're already 
10 years into their friendship. Um, they both go to the same quite exclusive private school, um, but they're what I call, think of as class adjacent, um, which is to say, if you look at them from a distance, you might think they're sort of in the same sort of milieu, but actually, uh, Mariam's family is extremely well-off and well-connected and with a long line of aristocratic antecedents. Um, they are the kind of people who live in a, a sort of zone of exclusion where what is happening to other people in the country doesn't apply to them because they can always pick up the phone and make a call to someone important um, and get out of any trouble or, um, you know, bend the laws to their own will. Um, and Zara's family is... Um, I suppose solidly middle class tends to be the, the kind of phrase people use. Her father is a um, cricket writer who's now got a cricket TV show and that's made him a sort of celebrity um, and moved him up financially in the world. Um, but they belong to a world, Zara's parents, where their friends are sort of journalists and human rights activists. And this is in a world of military dictatorship when the, the novel starts um, at it, at the beginning of the novel. Um, and very soon in the novel, the military dictator, Ziaul Haq, is uh, literally blown out of the sky. Um, and there's all this talk of democracy coming. So there's this change happening externally, but internally also there's, and more significantly to them, they're 14 years old. And they're at that moment where um, their bodies are changing, their hormones are changing, and... Um, in Mariam's case, that means she has very suddenly become someone who boys and men pay a particular kind of attention to. Um, and in Zara's case, it means that she is paying a particular kind of attention to boys and men. Yeah. And um, then the second half of the book, mm. we meet them again in 2019. Mm. And I don't want to give it away, but except to say that they live in London and they're both successful in their chosen fields. Yeah. And they're still friends. And they're still friends. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I suppose that in recent years in contemporary fiction, there's been an increase in this female friendship mm. genre. Um, the, the Ferranti Quartet is um, probably the most famous one, but um, also novels like Zadie Smith's Swing Time. Um, and I felt when I was reading this that the previous novels I'd read about female friendship, it struck me as often the engine of the story or what drove the plot was a competitiveness between the two friends and a, a kind of toxicity. And I didn't find that here. Mm -hmm. So I, I just wondered whether um, in your, on your part that was a deliberate departure from the genre or whether you see yourself as um, sitting apart from the genre altogether or, or maybe you don't think it's big enough to be a genre or, yeah... Um, I think it is a bit of a genre. I mean, the last two books I've read, it's, it's sort of yours and before that, Yi Yun Lee's The Book of Goose, um, yeah. which is, you know, also fantastic and, and you know, with these these two adolescent girls. Um, and I love the Ferrante. I really, I think she's a genius. Um, and I think gets, in some ways, for, it, it's a funny thing to say for all the credit she receives, I think doesn't get enough credit for all the things she's doing mm -hmm. in the book, such as showing you what it means to live in really violent societies mm -hmm. and how that seeps into character and relationships. Um, but I was aware while reading it of how often the central relationship is one of toxicity and, and, this, and very often that comes out or reaches ahead in the formal in the form of a, a sort of love triangle yeah like you a know, competition for a competition male and there's there's some there's some and it's usually very heterosexual some boy comes along and you know that makes everything come to a head um, and i was just sort of struck by how often you know the stories of female friendship become that story um, and i thought well there are other versions of it as well um, and so I became interested in writing another version, but, but not wanting to do something that's sort of all cloying and, well, they just love each other uncomplicatedly. Because if you know someone that long, that well, it's never going to be uncomplicated. No, and they, yeah, they do, um, I've, I think they see each other in ways that they would perhaps prefer not to be seen sometimes. Like, they're very alert to each other's flaws. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing about, you know, it's, uh, let me ask a question. Um, those of you sitting here, and that would include you, Diana. Oh. <laughs> How many of you still have in your life people who were your friends in childhood? 
to sort of show hands. <laughs> you do well, Australia, with your childhood <laughs> friends. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, in, it's a really interesting relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things about it is that, you know, there are points in, in people's lives when you go through maybe some period of reinvention, perhaps. Mm-hmm. University is often a phrase where you think, I don't want to be that, you know, that version of me who was in, in school, or, or you go into the working world. And, and sometimes that reinvention is generally there are new, there are parts of you that are, you know, you're bringing to the fore more. Um, but there's always going to be those people who've known you always, um, and they can see the reinventions, and they can see, you know, I mean, I was, a, I was an incredibly shy and insecure child. Mm. Um, and I know the friends who have met me now, for all that they are, that we are very dear friends, and they know me very well in all kinds of ways, but they don't actually actively see that in me. Um, Andy Sean Greer, who was just here doing an event earlier, he had a great line in, in his novel, Less, where someone says, I'm going to mangle the line because Andy says it far more beautifully. Um, you can't imagine someone when they were any younger than the youngest that they were when you met them. Mm. You know, you can hear stories and see pictures, but you, don't re- you can't deeply imagine them. Um, and your childhood friends can imagine you always, and you don't always want to be imagined in every awkward I mean to be have someone who knew you at 13 Mm. I mean come on (laughs) yeah and there's a great um there's a great bit in the um the the transition between the two halves of the book is um there's uh, two articles written one about each of the women which kind of catches the reader up to where they are in their lives and then immediately after that they meet in person and they kind of challenge the narrative that each of them has invented for themselves and so yeah I suppose do you think that that's a good thing about childhood friendship like do you think that's restrictive or do you think it's sort of a nice reprieve from the effort of constant self-invention I think it can be both I mean there's a bit in the the novel where this line of how you know sometimes if you've known someone forever you fail to see the person they they actually are now mm. because you're really holding on to some idea of who they were at some much earlier point mm. um, in their lives. And I think that can happen sometimes. Mm. Um, and I think what can also happen is sometimes people will revert to behavior. You know, you can, you can be with... And I think particularly if you get a group of people together who were very young together, if they adolescents together, suddenly you're all behaving like adolescents. Yeah. <laughs> and it's very strange. But there is, I think, something really wonderful. And I think the older you get, the more you, you realize the value of having those people who have known you always, who don't need, who know all your contexts. Mm. Um, I think when you become, as, as I have, if you move from the country you grew up in somewhere else, I think there's a different layer than to have those childhood friends who have also moved and really do not need to have explained, mm. um, you know, what it was to be 14 in Karachi at, at a particular moment. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I wanted to talk, yeah, I wanted to talk about their move and the two worlds they inhabit in the novel. Um, and I found it interesting because while their friendship is in many ways a study in contrast, they've got very different personalities and not very different, but relevantly different upbringings. Um, the two halves of the novel are in a lot of ways, um, there's a lot of similarities and perhaps more similarities than the reader would expect, um, particularly in terms of the way that um, power works in both societies um, and I wondered if um, I think that idea is very is best summarized in your own words so I wondered if you could just read sure. um, a short passage from the book this is one of the the things that has happened in my life since my last book came out I've now become a person who needs to remember reading glasses <laughs> it'll happen one day I know <laughs> um, Uh, so just to give you a brief bit of context, this is one of the characters, Mariam, is at an event for, that is for, political don- for donors to a particular political party, the ruling party. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship, the Prime Minister said, his hand on her again. His thumb stroked the underside of her arm. Perhaps we should set up a private meeting to discuss areas of mutual interest. Margaret Wright said we'd get on, she said. 
Margaret is always right about everything. He smiled and withdrew his hand. Margaret was friends with his mother-in-law. Now, if you'll excuse me, I can't possibly stand too much standing and talking to someone I actually want to talk to. That isn't in the job description. A wink and he was gone. Impressive. Barbara's friend was standing nearby holding two flutes of champagne. He handed one to her and clinked rims. She felt drunk already. How easy it all was once you were in this circle. How lightly everything could be done. Billion-dollar deals saved in a tone of banter, the classic elegance of a game unchanged across nations and centuries. She took a long sip. New possibilities slipped through her veins, drop by golden drop. Um, yeah, I, I love that, a game unchanged over <laughs> nations and centuries. So, yeah, I guess I just wanted to, I think... Um, this book obviously makes um, clear comparisons, I think, between big tech and um, the surveillance state of the dictatorship. But I also think it makes um, a, a, that point more generally about how power um, mm -hmm. operates. And yeah, I guess I was wondering if you could just speak to that and why you wanted to write about that. Yeah, I suppose this, I mean, now that I'm talking about it, I suppose this is a novel in which I'm in a couple of ways looking at a certain kind of story that gets told. And even though many of my favorite novels are that certain kind of story, I think there's another version to be told. So the stories of people migrating, and this is particularly if you have people from somewhere like Pakistan mm -hmm. moving to somewhere like the UK, the stories are of discontinuity. Um, it's you leave one place, you go to another, and you are sort of overwhelmed by the unfamiliarity of it. Um, and in some cases, that is, it becomes a story of trauma, the trauma of migration and relocation. Um, and in other cases, it becomes a story of possibility that you can reinvent yourself, you can have this new life and leave things behind. Um, but it's always this, this idea of discontinuity. And I was really interested in actually the things that continue and the things that carry across and, and how, you know, as with so many things, so much depends on class and wealth. Mm -hmm. um, and that if you belong to a certain world of um, the elite, as Mariam does, um, and you have both class privilege, I mean, you carry it within you, mm -hmm. that idea of there is no room in which I won't be welcome, there's no door through which I can't walk. Um, you have that and then you have the finances as well with it, um, that actually it allows you to move in, into circles of power um, in certain ways that can feel very familiar no matter where in the world you are. Um, and it's a sort of interesting, of course, to bring in, you know, yes, there's your race, there, there, yes, there's your gender, but then there's money. Yeah. yeah, and I think it, it makes an interest, it, like the sort of continuation of that point is an interesting idea about how we perhaps falsely equate identity and ethics sometimes because mm -hmm. we'll say, oh, look, the system's not unequal because there's someone who looks like Miriam at the top. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, was that a point that you were trying to make in the book or did, do you think that, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's not so, so much a point I was trying to make. It was just something that I had observed and, of course, in the time since the book came out, about three weeks after the book came out, um, Britain got its first brown prime minister and everyone was saying, hooray, diversity, yeah. you know. And he has a brown-skinned home secretary. Hooray, diversity. She wants to be so vicious to refugees and migrants. Mm -hmm. You're like, really? Um, but again, it is, it is this, you know, and this world of... Um, a certain kind of power where your alliances are to power mm. and to upholding the system in which you've, through which you've done so well. Um, and in Mariam's case, there's also, and I think it's not only Mariam, it happens in the world, um, there is a very you know, pragmatic, cynical side to it that she sees, okay, we're living in a world where there is pressure from the larger world towards anti-racism. And that the response of this to all kinds of power, corporations and governments and political parties, is diversity, mm -hmm. which is not part of anti-racism. It's 
almost like pushing back against by saying, well, we'll do something, but we don't actually want to change anything. Yeah. Um, it's a sort of a box-ticking exercise. And, and so there is a point in, in that scene with the prime minister where, um, where he's trying to get her more involved in the party and, and to be a kind of prominent face and supporter and, and said, you know, we need people like you. And she says, brown outside made of banknotes inside. Um, <laughs> and he says, oh, I didn't think we said things like that. Yeah. You know? But it's part of the game that they both recognize, and she recognizes that, that, yes, she could be quite useful to him because he wants to show the world, well, we're very friendly to, you know, but, but she's doing it in order to um, get further access to power and get certain deals for the companies that she has invested in. Yeah, there's... Mm. Um, I think in a Zadie Smith novel, she refers to it as um, like, uh, which is talking about tokens, I guess, tokenism, and she refers to it as a moral fig leaf. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea that it's just yeah. like placing, it's yeah. sort of covering up mm-hmm. what is a systemic problem yeah. with a surface solution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, I suppose, yeah. So I wanted to talk about how they. Um, so th- I mean, obviously, as you say, Miriam is um, is quite. Um, overtly cynical and she kind of she has a lot of agency but she Mm -hmm. is cynical about politics and her best friend from childhood is incredibly idealistic Um, and at one point a um, minor character in the book says that you can't let politics get in the way of friendship Uh, do do you think that (laughs) do you yeah is that an opinion you hold Um, I don't I don't know how you separate these things Mm. you know um, about 15 years ago, so I was, maybe more than that, I was doing a book event in America at a university and a, and a, and a student stood up, a woman, um, and said, asked a similar question about sort of, you know, politics and why is there so much politics in the novel and, or something. Um, or, you know, why, why in my novels politics seems to play such a role in people's personal lives. And I said to her with no foreknowledge of the shape the world was going to take, but just reaching for an example, I said, well, if ever Roe v. Wade is overturned in America, you'll stop asking why politics is personal. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I mean, look, if there's one thing we recognized during COVID, it surely was how much power the government, governments around the world can exercise over our personal rights. Now, I'm not even asking what you think of what different governments did and how they did it, but it became clear that your government can say to you, you cannot leave your house. You cannot go to your father's funeral. You cannot go with your partner to get a scan when she's pregnant. Um, You cannot get on a plane and fly to see the people you love. So that's politics. Yeah. Right. But it it is so intimately personal. Um, and if you grew up in a place like Pakistan, I suppose you're, you're always much more aware that your daily life is interwoven with things that are happening at a political level. There are days, and, and you, I mean, you find out these things in, you know, in sort of unusual ways. So the, the, in the novel, the girls are 14 when, you know, the dictator dies. Um, and, you know, it's this thing that happens, they, you know, there's a phone call and someone comes running. In my life, the way it happened was, you know, someone, I was 15 at the time, and an aunt of mine called and said, are your parents there? And I said, no, they're out. And she said, when they come home, tell them the president's been killed. A plane exploded with it, that he was on. And I said, okay, and I put down the phone. They came home, I didn't say a thing. And... Several hours later, my mother comes running to the room and says, um, Ziaul Huck is dead. And I said, oh, yeah, aren't so-and-so called to say? And they, they looked at me, my parents, and they said, why didn't you say anything? And I said, you know, she's always making stuff up. <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't until I was writing this novel, and I'm writing a scene where, where a similar thing happens where Zara's in her you know, sitting with her father, and the, her mother comes running in and says, Yaul is dead. Um, and her response is, it's not possible. Mm. And it's certainly not possible that there'll be elections after this. And it was only when writing that that I realized, oh, the reason I never told my parents 
what my aunt said was I didn't believe it. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, I was 15 years old, but it was so deep inside me already, this idea that this man is just there, nothing is getting rid of him. Um, I mean, that's deeply personal. Yeah. You know, you realize how early on you, you imbibe these ideas mm. of what the power structures you're living in look like and how they, they get into your, to your mind. So, so, you know, politics is, is, I mean, a lot of what politicians do is legislate how we live our lives. Mm. You know, whether it is to do with abortion, whether it's to do with gay rights, whether it's to do with migration, refugees, taxes, what we can afford, what we can't afford. Um, so many people last month in Britain suddenly found they were unable, that mortgage they were about to sign up for disappeared because of Liz Truss doing whatever she was doing. You know, it's, yeah. so it, it, is, it is intensely personal. I think the political. Yeah, I, I, mm. I agree, and obviously the mm. political is very intertwined with the. It's part of the fabric of mm. your novels, but um, I suppose I, I, this novel for me raised a question of loyalty. And mm. um, Miriam says at one point when she's she says that anytime she wants to resolve any argument of principle with mm. um, her best friend, she can just say, "Yes, you're right. I'm a morally bankrupt person." But what do you say then? You're the one who chose to love a morally bankrupt person. So I guess that just mm. made me wonder, do you think that loving someone is in some way an endorsement of their political beliefs such that there comes a point after which you, you can't in good conscience love them anymore? I think love is so complicated. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, it's a big question. You know, <laughs> um, and, and people are so complicated and there's so much to them. You know, I mean, there's, there's a version of the world... And there's someone I know who, who read the book and said, well, <clears throat> you know, I think Mariam is morally bankrupt in all these ways, so I'm not sure I quite believe that she has, you know, these sort of, this sort of loving family life and, you know, is a, is a good partner and parent and all that. And I thought, really? Because my experience of the world is actually people who can be very ethical and their views are really compassionate, can be horrible human beings mm. in their personal lives. They can be petty and vindictive and, you know, um, not there for their friends and all kinds of things. And other people who, you know, hold all kinds of beliefs that I find terrible might be deeply loyal and loving. But the way it can work out is is that you are deeply loyal and loving to those who you consider your own, you know. Um, and I think that's very much the way of Mariam's entire family is you look out for your own. You, you, if they need something, you are there for them. And you don't much care about anyone else. And in looking out for your own, you might do something terrible to someone else. And you'll justify it on, on the grounds of, but I'm doing it for... And, and people do that. It's just that different people have, you know, different ideas of what their own is. Mm -hmm. So it's, in some cases, your own is your family. In some cases, your family and friends. Your family and friends and neighbors, work colleagues. Um, the people in your tribe, the people of your ethnicity, the people of your nation... You know, there are all these different ways in which um, a lot of people, possibly most people, will draw distinctions between what you're willing to do for those who you consider your own um, and other people out there who you think, well, someone else needs to be looking out for them. Mm. Um, but do you endorse people's views by loving them? I think sometimes you... I think very often we say, I love you in spite of... I don't think you really love someone until you love them in spite of something. You know, um, when, you, when you meet people and there is that, and friendship often has this, that early romance of the friend who you just think is just wonderful. They're just brilliant. They're just amazing. They're the most amazing human being. When you think that, you don't really love them, right? Um, you're kind of enamored of them. Mm. It's when you start to see their human foibles and flaws and all the place in which you disagree, and then you love them, then you really love them. 
Right. Yeah, it's like yeah. in Anna Karenina when one of the characters yeah. says, if you love someone, you don't love them for who you want them to be. You love them yeah. for who they are. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But then, of course, the question more. becomes, at what point do those flaws and foibles just become such that you look at them and you think, but I don't like you. Mm. Right. I mean, that, that in a friendship is the sort of devastating, well, I love you, you know, I mean, your pain goes through my heart. But God, you're unpleasant. <laughs> and maybe you're not unpleasant to me. And so I haven't been seeing it, but now I have to see you being unpleasant to all these other people. And it, I can't not see it. And I can't, it, it's seeping into me. It's seeping into the way I see you. Um, mm. I think that can happen. Well, and yeah. it might happen in this book. You'll have to read it. it um, the um, so I want I also wanted to talk um, in sort of the last little bit about the um, so there's an event that um, the plot hinges on, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm going to sort of talk around it because it's um, very gripping. So I don't want to ruin it, but. Um, I'll, I'll, it's when the girls are 14 and they um, leave a party and they get into a car with two men and they end up in a, a precarious situation, which is excruciating to read, but as I said, very gripping. And then afterwards they struggle to know how to describe the situation even to each mm -hmm. other. Um which is, and they're obviously friends who've, they're both very articulate and they've never really had a problem telling each other the stories of their lives. And so, yeah, I, I suppose I just, I thought that was such an interesting idea that um, in a novel, the climax, or, or not the climax, but the, the pivotal event might be an event that the characters actually don't have language for. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I just wanted to ask you um, whether that was deliberate and what you think the role of um, narrativizing experiences is in being able to understand them and, and process them? Um, I mean, we, we turn things into stories, don't we? Mm. You know, something happens and you make a story of it. Um, and it's quite interesting if someone else sitting next to you may make a very different... And, mm. and the story becomes a way of exerting control quite often. You couldn't control the events, but you can, you can give it now a shape mm. in a narrative. Um, but what if you don't really know what happened? Mm. Um, and again, we're still talking around it, but I'll, I'll say, and, and forgive me if I'm, gentlemen, if I'm particularly um, directing this to, to the women in the room, but when I, when I speak to other women about the book and I'll say there's this one moment and I'll say, you know, when you, it's this moment when they get into a car with these two men and I said, you know the moment when, you're, when you meet a man um, and you're in that adolescence, I mean, it doesn't have to be adolescence, but in this case it is you know, adolescent, heterosexual teenagers. Um, and you get in a, a car and there's this moment where it's exciting and there's all this possibility and it's sort of thrilling. And then something very tiny happens and a switch in your brain goes, and then you're terrified. And that moment, right? And what was that thing that made you terrified? And sometimes it's fine. Sometimes you, you know, you, you exit the car and nothing happened. And then you sit there and you think, did I imagine that? Was there something threatening? Could something have happened if I had said this rather than that, if someone else hadn't, you know, pulled up in the car next to us? Um, and the closest anyone gets to language for it is, is Mariam at one point just uses this fear, phrase, girl fear. Um, and girl fear is about that, that fear that girls learn so early on that we do not remember when we learned it. Um, it's a thing that um, means that at night we don't walk through dark path, parks and we'll stay on the well-lit street and we hear the footsteps behind us and speed up and sometimes the, we pull the keys out of our bag and put them between our fists like a weapon. Um, that, right? That girl fear. 
which is so present and prevalent that there are times when you when you when you think did i just think there was something awful because in my head there is such an idea that being female means that you could be attacked at any moment mm. um that your body is a site of possible violation vulnerability or did he do something mm. could he have known i was was he enjoying my fear was he aware of it was he playing it up um you know all these sort of unknown questions i i i sort of quite deliberately wanted them to both be living in that in that area but to be thinking very differently of it yeah that's yeah. what struck me how yeah. the, the way that they thought about it was it's so informed by their respective upbringings mm-hmm. like um there's one this just to take a granular example at, at one point um they pull over and um the driver picks up a bag um and they don't know what's in it and but they hear the bag going into the boot and Miriam who's more sheltered thinks that it's full of video cassettes and then Zara is convinced it's full of guns so yeah i guess i just wanted to ask as a novelist is that something you're interested in about how the way that we tell the way that we tell ourselves the stories of our lives is um not just an act of self invention but it's also like so socially constrained yeah very much i mean you know the world makes no sense it's absolute chaos out there <laughs> yeah. it is totally i mean in any day so many things are happening right um and and so the storytelling it's what we're doing everyone is doing it all the time i mean you and i make a profession of it mm. um but everyone is always constructing stories and narratives in order to make sense um in order to give priority to certain events in, in a day you know what did you do today oh nothing i mean yes you did Uh, but some days it's oh nothing and other days what do you do today oh i had this conversation and then that conversation becomes the day mm. the marker of the day um it, we give it a different weight that becomes a thing that we would write down if we were to write it down um and so this whole idea of how we as you say self narrativeize um and where that comes from i mean the fact that you know for anyone who has siblings you can live in the same house as someone and then one day you're sitting and you're talking about a moment in your childhood and you suddenly realize you have completely different takes on it um and that perhaps you have completely different takes on what it meant to be the children of your parents or who your parents were or how you were raised um and and but certainly social construction is because <clears throat> so much of our life is what we imagine is happening um or what we imagine might happen um or subtext that we're reading into things um or kind of conclusions we're going to have to race to like what what is the sound in that bag mm. um and all those things i mean so much of our of our days is actually made up of guesswork mm. you know um which is i mean there's there's very much a social construct where where does your imagination go in which direction does it go to video cassettes or guns both of which were a major part of karachi life in the 1980s do you as <laughs> as the author do yeah. you have an idea of which of the girls was correct like do you know what's in the bag i'm not telling okay. you okay <laughs> <laughs> um yeah well and i suppose as an author um, that that whole idea of how telling the story of the world is what it's how you make sense of it obviously that example is a more kind of um sinister one but there's also the lovely sense in when they say to each other that um when they don't tell each other about bad things that are happening in their lives these 14 year old girls say oh well it's not real until you tell someone um so i just wanted to ask Kamala what if you think that um telling stories of the world is what is what makes it real mm. as a novelist what do you see as your role and what what kind of things do you set out to to make real um it's a good question it you know my um sometimes we'll say well what did you want to show us in this novel what did you want to tell us and my response is I don't start a novel thinking I have things to show you or tell you. Um I always start a novel because there are things I want to discover. Um so with this novel for instance I mean I've been really interested always in childhood friendship um not always but there was a moment in my 
20s when my sister, who's just two years old, and we have a lot of friends in common, um, she said, well, the friends we make as adults are our friends because we have something in common. But our childhood friends are our friends because they've always been our friends. And the older I get, the more true that, that seems, and the more I, I also realize that the friends I make as adults um, increasingly sort of swim in the same pool as me. You know, they're, they're writers, they're academics, they're journalists. Um, the friends of, from my childhood are bankers and hedge fund managers and architects and ad executives, and, and they have a range of political views which the friends of my adult lives don't. Mm. Um, and I was really... And it's possible with my childhood friends, we just... We know we have differing views, we don't talk about it much. Uh, we make each other laugh a lot. There are all kinds of things we have in common. We ask about each other's parents. Um, this is the really one of the really crucial things when you're around my age, um, that you're, you start losing, or you're quite deep into losing the older generation. Um, and you realize how important it is to be around people who knew you when you were the child of your parents, I mean really the child, when you were growing up in that house. Um, you know, what your father or mother meant to you when you were six or 11 or 14. Um, that they understand, and when you lose a parent, I, thankfully this hasn't happened to me yet, but I've seen enough of my friends to know that they're not just losing you know, the parent who is now, they're losing the parent who was their parent when they really, when that was the person who looked after you um, and who was, who was power and who was safety in your life, um, if you're lucky. Um, and so I was, I was interested in this question of, well, what happens if you take one of those friendships and you place it in a moment that is the moment in which we have found ourselves in many countries of the world, politically in the last few years. Um, I mean, I'm thinking specifically of 2016, mm. where there was Brexit and then there was Trump. And there were all these conversations where, where people started to, I started to hear people say, I can no longer speak to this person. Whether this person is a friend, a family member, a colleague. Um, and, they, and what interested me was they never said, I can't speak to them, I'm so shocked by their views. You almost never hear that. It was almost always, you knew their views, you always knew their views, but until that moment, it was possible to navigate your way around it and pretend it's you know, a difference you can live with. And then there's something in, in the world and in those particular um, political moments that made it impossible to just say, well, we have different views, but we make each other laugh. Um, and so I, I wondered what happens to the, that really powerful childhood friendship if you place it in, a, in this moment where it's impossible to ignore those differences. Um, and I didn't know the answer. I mean, I wrote the book to find out the answer, what will happen to these, these two girls. Um, and do you think mm. the experience of writing it gave you the answer, or do you think it complicated it even further? I, interestingly, I don't think it gave me the answer. I think it made me understand the why childhood friendships are valuable mm. in a way that I hadn't before. So all the stuff around, you know, the importance of you know, knowing parents who, know, knowing people who knew you when you were a child mm. in your family home, um, and also the ease of someone who's known you so long that, that they know all your context and there's no explaining, um, and all kinds of things, but also the sort of irritation of you aren't seeing who I am now because you think you know me so well, but it's my, when you knew me best, we were 15, and we haven't talked with that intensity since we were 19 because the way you talk to your teenage friends, it's sort of every everything in the day has to be dissected and every thought and feeling has to be dissected. Um, so all those things, so it made, it made the childhood friendship, the, that particular dynamic much clearer. Mm. Um, and I think, if anything, it made me realize that, that to that other question of, 
of should politics get in the way, does politics get in the way, um, that the answer is, well, in most cases, it doesn't until it does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I just have one more question and then we'll go to audience questions. So, um, yeah, if you've been sitting on one, um, now's your time to think about it. <laughs> so um, this was um, just a, a kind of general craft question, mm-hmm. not about this book in particular, but... Um, as someone who's just at the start of um, a career as a writer, I look at a writer like you who's eight books down the road um, and you started when you were in your 20s. And I just wanted to ask two things. One is um, what's changed and what's stayed the same? And then the second, that's, that's two questions. Maybe I have three questions. Um, then the next question is um, what do you think drives you to move on to the next one? Hmm. Um, what's changed is well this didn't have this with the first novel so that's nice so actually the actual publication you know of course has changed a lot Mm. Um, but in terms of the the writing um, I think what's changed is I'm much more interested in risk as a writer than I was Mm. Um, that through with the first novel, there was such feeling of that the, that writing a novel was the risk and the challenge. Mm. You know, um, how do you do this thing? And that with each novel, you want to you always want to be a little bit afraid and a little unknowing and a little unsure if you can pull it off. Um, but the ways in which that that fear and unknowing manifest, I suppose, change. Um, what hasn't changed is the actual feeling of it. You know, you sit down to write, and usually for me, I sit down with sort of glimmers of an idea. Home Fire was different because it was based on Antigone, so I sort of had a um, a much more information than I usually do. Um, But it's sort of, you sit down, there are glimmers, and there's a sort of tingling that you know there's a novel and then you sit down and you don't know how there's a novel. Um, and beginnings are painful and terrifying. Um, what's changed is it's much more possible now to, to um, have that moment of painful and terrifying and really know very deep in your bones, this is how it happens. This is how it happens every time. Don't panic. Don't panic about the terror. Don't panic about the fact you don't know how this is going to work out. Just write your way through it. So I think I've learned that much more. Um, And also what hasn't changed is when it's a good day, it's the best day. That's such a nice place, I think, (laughs) to go to questions. Thank you. That was beautiful. Oh. Um, so just put up your hand and one of the ushers will give you a microphone. While they're doing that, um, I've just got some housekeeping, so I'll tick that off. Um, so um, the official bookseller for tonight is reading. So if you pre-purchased a book with your ticket, you can collect it after the event where copies will be available for purchase and signing. That's the end of the housekeeping. <laughs> Thank you for that lovely conversation. I'm just curious... What advice would you give to aspiring novelists? Um, write the damn thing. <laughs> and, and I don't say this as a joke. I mean, when I, I did my um, MFA in creative writing many years ago, and many of the best writers in there have never published because they never finished. Mm. Um, and particularly, I'd say, with a first draft, get to the end. You know, and always remember, you can revise. I would never be able to write anything if I didn't always know. I can, I can revise, I'll make this better. It's, yes, there are problems here. Let me get to the end and, you know, just have something that has beginning, middle and end and then go back. Um, but sort of endlessly working away in order to perfect that opening, don't do it.
Thank you very much for the conversation. Kamala, do you have a favourite amongst your eight novels? Yeah. <laughs> I do, actually. It's a very funny one because it always used to be my favourite is the one I'm working on now and my least favourite is the previous one. Um, was, was the case for a very long time, but actually um, I, probably A God in Every Stone, um, not Home Fire, not Burnt Shadows, those are the two which are... I think most other people's. Um, I mean, at the moment, it's best of friends just because we are like in that early friendship stage where you just like are so excited by each other um, <laughs> because it's all new and thrilling. Um, but I think A God in Every Stone is is most the sort of book for a reader like me, um, which has all my nerdy interests in it. Um, can I ask? Sorry, yeah. I've asked so many questions. Yeah. What kind of reader are you? What are your nerdy interests? Oh, I mean, that has nerdy interests because it's got it's got ancient history and archaeology and it's got early 20th century politics and it's got um, sort of feminism and it's got, yeah, hidden histories and very nerdy. Yeah. Um, I guess I was interested in hearing you reflect on how maybe um, the internet has affected global, uh, sorry, and globalization have affected childhood friendships and those relationships. Oh, good question. Um, I mean, there's a way in which, of course, it's just that much easier to keep in touch with each other. Um, you know, I have a I have a WhatsApp group of ten of my childhood friends, and we speak almost every day. Um, I mean, we say nothing of substance most <laughs> of the time, um, but we're in we're in touch with each other, um, and that is useful. But also, and part of globalization is. Um, m- Hardly any of my friends live in, my childhood friends still live in Karachi. You know, most went to university in America and this was the 90s and everyone was hiring and they, oh, and this was the other thing. It was the 90s, not everyone was hiring. It was the 90s and these were people with Pakistani passports and they wanted to stay on in America. It was a particularly um, horrendous time in Karachi for all kinds of reasons. And the places that could give you, get visas that had the clout were banks. And so a lot of people became bankers in order to get the visas in order to stay. Um, and they might otherwise have, you know, done other things. They might have become artists or um, designers or something or the other. But it was, you know, it was very much this question of, at that point, you know, the banks were just hoovering up the smart young things from everywhere. Um, and there was this whole category of visa and power attached to it. Um, and and people change as a result because you know what you do in your professional life that's much of your life um, and so it shapes you and you think well how would we all have been different if in the 90s either people came out of university and said I'm going back to Karachi um, or they came out and said well actually any industry will be able to get me in a, a visa um, so I think about that sometimes about how so many people entered this sort of mainstream capitalism um, in order to stay in, in a certain place. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it actually affects newer friends more because I think what happens now, which never used to happen before, is you meet someone and you think, oh, you seem nice, and then you instantly go onto their socials, right? And then you may scroll down and say, oh, no, I don't like you. Oh, you said that? You think that, oh, you're one of those show-offy, you know, and you just, there's that instant sort of, you know, you can instantly get a snapshot. And of course, you are getting a snapshot of their social media persona. And if you look at many of your childhood friends, they may have social media persona that you think is kind of, but you just roll your eyes and say, oh God, they're doing that again. Uh, but it's fine because you, you know them. You knew them before the social media persona and you can just see that's, you know, one of the aspects of themselves. But I do think with... It, it has complicated the business of making friends because too much, you know, there, there's something to be said for a slow accretion of detail about people's lives and the fact that, that in friendship, actually so much at an early stage is about you and them or maybe you and them within a small group, whether it's at university or at school or at, um, you know, in the workplace or whatever. Uh, but now you're seeing them out in the world in this different way. So I think that is is sort of interesting. And of course, you know, for people much younger than me, that starts in childhood. I mean, you know, I, I know sort of 11 and 12-year-olds who are like, 
oh my God, you know, this kid I just met at school, but now I've looked at him on TikTok. <laughs> you know, and they're 12 year olds and only deciding, no, that's no good. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm a really big fan of your work and you're the only author I read whose books are set in Pakistan and I was wondering if you could recommend any other authors. Um, sure. Um, Mohsen Hamid, Moni Mohsen. Um, there are two really good books out this year. Um, one called The Return of Faraz Ali by Amina Ahmed, um, and one, I'm very bad with titles, but by Temur Sumro. Um, I think it's called We Need New Stories, but I may be wrong about that, um, who are excellent this year. Um, Sami Shah, who lives in Australia, really fine writer as well. Usma um, Aslam Khan, excellent writer. Usma Aslam Khan writes better about the body and women's sexuality than almost anyone else. Yeah. Cool. We probably have time for one more. So lucky last. Thank you for the discussion. I was interested when you say that the way that elite power works is quite uniform. I'm, I'm sort of looking around only because Hello, I'm here. Ah, <laughs> oh, okay, there you are. Yeah, sorry. Thank you, you were saying that the yeah. way that elite power works is quite universal across different countries. But I was wondering if in the book you were also saying something about democracy being a bit different in Britain at the moment. Yeah. I mean, and also when I say it works differently around the world, I should also say it, it is not insignificant that, you know, Pakistan was once a colony of Britain. And so there are certain things around the way class and schooling and, you know, um, a certain kind of banter and a certain kind of humor, um, you know, are, are recognized and and. and you know, present in, in both at a certain level. Um, uh, yes, I'm very much saying something how democracy works right now. You know, I mean, there is this sort of... Um, I mean, power has... And power and corruption have always gone hand in hand in some way. Um, but there is something right now about um, the way money and donations, which in so many countries... Um, are now sort of accepted as part of the process. I mean, it was so striking to me in America when, you know, a few months ago when the Democrats passed this, uh, what was talked of as, as the climate change bill, uh, you know, the most significant piece of climate legislation um, ever passed in America. But the Democrats couldn't pass it until one of their own number, Joe Manchin, signed off. And he wasn't signing off. You know, he was asking, there were certain changes he asked for and got. It is a well-known fact that he is the largest recipient of donations from the energy sector. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just a well-known fact. And no one doesn't know this. No one denies it. Um, and you just think, so what is going on if the most significant piece of climate legislation is held up because a man who is the recipient of huge donations from the energy sector says, I won't sign off on this and you won't get it through the Senate un unless you make certain changes that are of benefit to the energy sector. I mean, really, what's going on? Um, and I think in many countries we're now seeing, or we're much more aware. Um, you know, when I, when I was starting the novel, um, I was in 2019, and I was struck by a new story about a group called the Leaders Group. Um, and if you you paid 50,000 pounds to the Tory party, you got to be part of the leaders group and you had access to government ministers. But, you know, they, I mean, all donations have to be said, but, but what kind of access you were getting, what kind of conversations were going on and who was turning up was quite opaque. And I thought, this is interesting. And I thought someone who grew up in Pakistan with well-connected families who could, you know, make phone calls and make things happen would, would recognize this. And I thought, well, so I'll invent such a such a group and i thought 50000 isn't a lot of money for the really rich and i thought i'll make another group i'll call it the high table you have to pay 200000 pounds to get in um and you'll have much more access to the prime minister to the chancellor um i was working on a late draft of the novel when news reports came out of a previously unknown political donation group for which you have to pay 250,000 pounds <laughs> to get in, to get access to. And again, no one knows the particular conversations that are going on and what, what people are expecting in return for their investment. Mm. Yeah. 
That's a bit very timely in Australia because on Monday the um, donations that were disclosed from our latest federal election mm-hmm. were made public and I think they were all-time, like, record high yeah. donations. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Very timely. There um, Well, thank you so much, Karma, for such a fantastic discussion. Um, Karma will be signing copies of her books after this. And so will Diana. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, thank you all so much for coming and can we give Kamala a huge round of applause? That was Diana Reeds in conversation with Kamala Shamsi, recorded at the Capitol, Wednesday the 9th of November 2022. This event was presented in partnership with RMIT Culture. It was part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas programme, supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.